Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a businessman who was the first oil executive to confront environmental issues. Without engineering, nothing can happen, whether it's the flint axe, which was an engineered product to start with, a beautiful one, or whether it's the James Webb Telescope, which we're going to put a million miles away from planet Earth to look close to the beginning of time and inspire us. These are great things which change the way we think about civilization and what we do. That was Lord John Brown, former chief executive of BP. He came into the FT recently to talk to me about his book, Make, Think, Imagine, on engineering and the future of civilization. Now, the public debate about tech has turned pretty ugly over the past few years. The cool kids of Silicon Valley have turned into the bad boys of tech. And we worry about surveillance capitalism, the concentration of economic power, and even runaway superintelligence that we no longer control. Yet your book is refreshingly optimistic about the benefits that engineering, technology and innovation can bring. What are the rest of us missing? Well, I think look around the world. Just look around and see what's happened to the world. People are healthier, they live longer, they're more literate, they're more connected, and the world is less violent. And a lot of that is brought to us, actually all of it's brought to us, by the progress of engineering and technology. So I start on the big picture, and I start also on how we live our lives. It's so different. A convenience is something we take for granted. It's been a hard-won battle to get there. People want everything instantly, and they get it instantly. And this changes the patterns of living. So many, many things are good. Plus also, every time you go and see the doctor, you go and see your banker, you get answers much faster. You don't have to wait. This is all about engineering. So when people are worried about technology, are their concerns rational, or do you think it's irrational fears? So I think quite a lot is inspired by hype. If you take, for example, the big debates about AI, two things. One is, does that mean all the jobs will eventually evaporate? The answer is, I don't think so. I think like all forms of improved automation, improved thinking, these are ideas in AI which are very good, very powerful, and work on a specialized basis. Improve the expertise of humans. But in the end, the humans are the controllers and the AI are the advisors. And I think it changes what we do. Of course it does. It may change employment to put perhaps more of empathy and caring in the hands of humans because I think machines can't do that. So there are big issues about would the work week reduce? Of course the work week will reduce. In 1870, if we were sitting here in 1870, we'd see an average work week in the industrial world of 70 hours. It's now 35. And we've handled that pretty well. And we'll handle it to 25, so long as we understand it changes social fabric and we need to do something about it. As for the big scares of generalized AI and machines that will be bigger and better than us and will never allow themselves to be turned off and eliminate the human race, I don't buy it. I think the human brain, which is the real expression of generalized intelligence, we don't quite describe what that is, one human brain has more connections in it than all the computers in the entire world. So I think we've got a long way to go. 
But I think the Nick Bostrom argument is that we're playing with a bomb in this area, that we might inadvertently use these powerful technologies in ways that we simply don't understand. So it's not necessarily a question that we're going to have some rogue superintelligence, but we're just going to misapply extraordinarily powerful well, I, technologies. I agree with Nick, because I think that there are people who will use these technologies for bad purposes. There will always be people who do that. And how can we stop people from doing Sometimes that? Sometimes we can't. We've managed to stop people about nuclear bombs, about chemical and biological warfare. We've pretty well stopped people using CRISPR for bad reasons. Look at the outcry against the Chinese doctor, including by the Chinese government. But there are some things which violate human rights, where standards and values in different countries are different, and there's not a lot we can do about it. So, for example, the Chinese will use facial recognition for the supervision of so-called undesirable people, or providing social credit scores for certain populations. We don't like that. It doesn't fit with our value system. It violates our understanding of human rights. And so we'd stop that. But in the end, about human rights, the attitude to human rights requires constant vigilance and is different in different countries. I mean, it is inherently a lot harder to regulate AI, I would argue, than it is, say, nuclear weapons, which were primarily the domain of big state powers. And so it was a matter of interstate regulation and arms control protocols. Whereas artificial intelligence clearly is used by thousands, millions of different actors and private sector companies in many respects are more powerful than the states themselves. So how could we ever get agreed international framework for this? Well, I'm not sure we get an agreed international one. You may well get it trading block by trading block or country by country, where people can be regulated to stop the adverse use of this technology as much as any other technology. I mean, we can think of drones, which you know deliver medicine, but drones could, in theory, be made as a single automated assassins for individual people. Now, we need to make sure we regulate and control areas so that both peer pressure, the regulation, and the law stops people doing these adverse things. There will always be escapees. There always are. And we just need to make sure we learn from them and make sure the penalties are sufficient so that people don't try and violate. Now, you went around the world interviewing over 100 of the leading experts in many different fields in technology. What surprised you the most? What do you get most excited about? Well, I got most excited about what was going on in healthcare. Partly, I expect, because it was a new area for me. But it is remarkable It started with Bob Langer, who's called the Edison of Medicine. His laboratory produces some extraordinary innovations, all based on engineering. He's an engineer, not a a medic. But they're about how you can intervene in the body to the least extent possible to cure things like tumours, different diseases, by having time-release medicines, by having little rafts that float along your bloodstream as if it's a river, to get to the destination, do something, and then come back to test out different agents to destroy tumours. So I found that interesting. I found also the frontiers of if we could really harness all the data we know about an individual and then add them all together. For example, the 70 years' worth of data the NHS has on, on average, I suppose, about 60 million people, from primary care to secondary care, to how they live, whether they smoke, whether they exercise, as well as the genetic data, we might actually get to the point where, with modern algorithms, we can diagnose disease very quickly, 
We can even forecast disease very quickly and we could radically change the healthcare system. So they say that the data can help on the three Ps of medicine, which is personalization, precision and prevention. Yes. Is that right, do you think? Absolutely. Prevention, we've been in that business ever since we tried to cure the great stink of London. And we realised that diseases were transmitted between human beings and sewage and things like that through to today, which is the great advances in public health. But also all the other things we can do on a personalised basis, you can begin to see the beginnings of it if you go around very advanced clinical areas with immunology and things like that. All of that actually is about engineering. I still stand in a position where I say engineers have saved far more lives than physicians. <laughs> You're also the chairman of the Francis Crick Institute. What can we expect from that institution? Well, that is a great institution designed to discover things. Can so you tell us a bit about how it came about in the history of it? It came about by the merger of a couple of really extraordinary institutions in the UK with the idea that we build an institution where people with different discipline backgrounds would intermingle so that we could do research, discovery, which took more than one particular functional interest to get to a discovery. And so by bringing all these people together and by having very expensive and important equipment used by many people, we built this new institute. And it's up and running and it's doing very well. It is in the business of discovery. It is not in the business of making products. And people sometimes get confused there. So if we could find out exactly why cancers occur, why they occur, I think we'll learn a lot more about what to do about it. So we are doing a lot of that. It's not all the things we do. And we occasionally translate the results of one of our discoveries into the clinic. And then from the clinic, it'll probably go into the market. And it's very interesting how in a once derelict area around King's Cross in North London, there is an amazing new kind of knowledge quarter oh, emerging, yes. isn't there? That We have Google's offices there. We have part of UCL, and many startups are also springing up there. Do you think this is going to be the Palo Alto of Britain? Well, I think it'd be one of them. There's no doubt. For the Crick, it allows us to intermingle people in this extraordinary building where people have to cross and meet each other on gangways, as it were, through the atrium, where laboratories are visible to everybody, where people do get together. But more importantly, too, we're in an area where we have access to Many of our university partners, you know, UCL is down the road, and that's where the human beings are, where we don't deal with that at the Crick, but that's what we want to do. We want to get to do great things with human beings. The Welcome's there, and of course the Turing Institute is there. And this simply demonstrates that all these specialities have to come together today. Interdisciplinary is an overused word, but it's a true word that great things discovered in the in-between uh, traditional subjects, and that's what we're trying to do. And it's very often innovation comes from the unlikely juxtapositions of different ideas. Is that exactly what's going to happen there, do you think? I think so. I come back to this point about gigantic data beyond big data. I think we will discover some extraordinary things about how to think about what the data means to an individual. Now, the great challenge of our age, in a way, is climate change. And you were one of the first oil bosses to acknowledge the linkage between burning fossil fuels and climate change in a speech you gave when you were chief executive of BP back in 1997, I believe. 
Do you regret not pushing this agenda even harder at BP? And do you think there is a technological solution to stall global warming? Well, I think I pushed the agenda as hard as I could to the point where most of the industry, when I started it, I think the American Petroleum Institute said I'd left the church, which I think meant that I was excommunicated (laughs) by the industry. But the industry came along eventually. It's not fully there. I wish I could have pushed it harder and harder, but we did. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Do an awful lot. We broke the ice and we got into the water and started doing things, which primarily was to have an agenda of actions, not just words, to change the way energy is delivered. So no one, I think, in an oil industry thought about climate change as the thing that they really wanted to happen. It was an unintended consequence of growth. That's why people also don't like growth today. They think there are too many unintended consequences. But unintended consequences created by engineering can be solved by engineering. And I'm convinced now that we have all the engineered products, the technologies available to solve climate change. The problem is we don't have the right incentives or policies in place to deploy them at the scale needed to get the economics of them at an acceptable level. So can you explain what are the technologies you think are the most promising? So there are two really big groups. First is make sure that enough CO2 is absorbed by the planet. So it's making sure the oceans are kept clean because they are big absorbers, that forests aren't cut down and that we till the soil very carefully without destroying the cover too much. So there are those sorts of things. Then on the emissions side, when you look at how energy is delivered to the world, for quite a long time, a lot of it will be in fossil fuel form. And burning fossil fuels creates carbon dioxide. So we need technologies, which we have, to capture CO2 where it's generated in a centralised way and do something with it, not let it go into the atmosphere, either bury it in sealed aquifers, there are plenty of those around the world, or else use it. Different ways of making concrete, for example, different ways of making certain types of plastics. So those technologies are there, plus we can substitute some of the energy with renewable energy forms, which are getting much cheaper because, as with all engineered products, the more you make, the cheaper they become. So solar panels are getting better, wind farms are getting better. And finally, we should rethink our attitude towards efficient nuclear reactors. They are safe if they're constructed properly, The problem is they're very expensive because it seems that nuclear power stations are about the only thing I know in engineering where the more you make, the more expensive they become. (laughs) So I think a new approach is needed, probably with small-scale nuclear reactors, very small ones, when you build them in a factory and they're packaged up. 
and then you bring them and you add several of them together to make a decent power station. I think that's very possible. But as you were just saying, all of this depends upon an enabling policy environment. And as we've seen in the US, at least at the federal level, they appear to be heading in the opposite direction. How confident, how optimistic are you that we can make real progress in this area? So I think the progress to date has not been great. It's not been bad. We've certainly done some things. For example, we've been using more gas. Natural gas produces less CO2. So emissions have come down. So that's good. We've done very well with renewables. But we now need, I think, a new thought about policy, how the government can take the first risk with some of this very big technology, carbon capture and storage, so that eventually the commercial sector can take the risk when the price comes down. And I think you begin to see that. But politicians have to realise that it's a short-term pain for long-term gain here. We've seen that recently in the UK, where the trillion pounds to be spent on reducing greenhouse gases here has to be found by changing priorities in the budgets of the UK. And that's a short-term to long-term trade-off. Now, sometimes said that the big data companies are the equivalents of the big oil barons, that data is the new oil, which I think is a pretty bad comparison. But in your book, you do compare the exercise of power by the likes of Facebook and Google and Amazon and so on with that of Standard Oil back in the day. Do you think that these tech giants need to be broken up in the way that Standard Oil was? I think be cautious about breaking things up, but regulating perhaps to make sure that consumers have genuine choice. And I think that really was the issue with Standard Oil. It is the issue here. But breaking things up does have unintended consequences. I think about the breakup of AT&T in the United States and therefore the dissolution of Bell Laboratories, well known as a Nobel Prize factory. But the dissolution of that and the selling of technologies has meant, for example, that the US does not have its own vibrant 5G technology. That technology has now turned out to be in the hands of Nokia, Ericsson and Huawei. So only three companies have got it. And I don't think, again, it was an intended consequence, but it was the long-term unintended consequence of dismantling something that has resulted in a migration of the technology. So you're, in that sense, arguing against the breakup or the dissolution of a lot of these big tech companies. You think, think that... We have to be careful how it's done. I think people have to look at it very carefully and look at the long-term consequences. You know, breaking up things that work because they're integrated, you have to be careful about what you do. Now, you know both the US and China very well, and it's sometimes said that we are heading very rapidly for a new technological cold war between the US and China. And you also have a particular interest in this, in being chairman of Huawei in the UK. Are we heading for a technological cold war? Too early to tell, I would say, but it looks as if Huawei is now the subject of two great powers, fighting over either security or a technology trade war, or both. And it'll never be clear what they're fighting over. The views vary depending on where you're in the world. But to take it to its logical consequence, if technologies can't be used across borders, it will mean the world will break up into different technology domains. And I think the worry would be if the internet, the World Wide Web, broke up. And then we would have different forms of communication and connectivity 
across the world. This can't be good, I think. And it certainly will not be good in commerce, let alone behaviour. So that's a world in which we end up with a splinter net. We have a kind of a splinter net. Ec- yes. ecosystems uh, around the world. Right. And would that temper the optimism that you have in your book? Do you think that would really be quite detrimental to further I, I think it will certainly slow progress, much as all trade wars slow growth. And they're detrimental to all consumers because things become less efficient, there's less choice, and therefore people don't have to be so concerned about what they're actually doing. Do you think it's actually possible to disentangle the technology between the US and China, given the number of US companies that supply components for Huawei's phone and clearly the fact that iPhones are made in China? And, you know, technology from both sides are sold in both countries. So I think everything is possible if it really is a trade war. It's quite possible. The consequences would be dire. I hope not, because I don't think it produces a result that we'll all be happy with. One of the constant themes in your book is really a celebration of imaginative thinking and engineering in particular. And you're obviously quite agitated that engineering does not get greater recognition in our societies. And you have a quote from your book, I get a little bit fed up with people characterising civilization as the pursuit of arts, and that's wrong. It's simply wrong. Without engineering, it's very unclear whether anything that enabled us to create, write or disseminate would ever exist. How do we revalorize engineering? I mean, at one time in Britain in particular, the engineers were the true heroes of the Victorian industrial age. They have ceased to be so now. How do we make them heroes once again? Well, much as any hero is made, we have to have role models and we have to promote them and we have to praise them and celebrate them. And therefore, we'll get people following in the footsteps of role models. I think that's really very important. Let me say, I'm a person who's been so deeply involved in the arts, and I believe firmly that this is a very important part of humanity and civilization. But my main point is, without engineering, nothing can happen, whether it's the flint axe, which was an engineered product to start with, a beautiful one, or whether it's the James Webb Telescope, which we're going to put a million miles away from planet Earth to look close to the beginning of time and inspire us. These are great things which change the way we think about civilization and what we do. It's often said that politicians do not understand technology, which I think is largely true. But the flip of that is that technologists very often don't understand politics. And I think clearly we do need a convergence of these two worlds, as you're saying, and you're arguing very powerfully in your book. How is that going to come about? How do, say, the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs understand the societal and political context in which they're operating better? How do engineers understand this policy environment needed to address issues like climate change? So the easy answer would be, well, let's educate engineers to know everything, and it's quite impossible. But we could begin, and we must begin, and it does happen in certain parts of the world, to educate engineers to at least understand how to look across the boundaries of their subject to see how they impact and influence people and whether they simply do things because they can be done or should they do things only that should be done. So I think it's partly the education of the engineer. It's also the governance of what engineers do. And I think the governance is very important. Evidence, I think, the issues with Facebook and Uber, it's all about changing the mode of behaviour to look to see what impact you're having on society generally, rather than just the impact you're making with your product on 
a specific subset of society. And do you think those tech companies have got it? Well, I think if they haven't, someone will make sure they get it because society is very concerned, I think, about the impact of big data, about AI. It's one of the reasons people begin to think progress isn't a good thing, but I don't agree. I think it's a selective reading of small impacts that will be changed because people generally are very commonsensical about this and regulators and politicians follow that vein of thinking. What was the most surprising thing you discovered on your world tour? I suppose the most surprising thing I discovered was in the medical field, just the extraordinary way that people think about life, longevity and health, both good and bad. I remember speaking to someone who said to me that while I thought that climate change was the biggest existential threat to humanity, she thought it was Sally Davis that AMR was the biggest existential threat to humanity. That's antimicrobial resistance. And she said it's a competition of which one will get us first. So I found this sort of thinking very interesting, some alarming, some very positive. I'd like to see you know, what we could do to reduce suffering. I remember speaking to Bob Langer, who said in his view, his only objective is to reduce human suffering. And I think that's a great way of thinking about why engineering is the bedrock of civilization. We must end it there, but thank you very much, John. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Next week, we hear from Jennifer Doudna, US biochemist and leading figure in the CRISPR revolution in gene editing. We welcome comments and suggestions from listeners, so please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon.